this morning, um, we're picking up in our study of chapter 1 of Genesis. This is our third week on that chapter, so uh, I suspect we will conclude it. I want to give you one or two uh, overview thoughts here, if I could. There, I, I just I don't understand why there is, but there is a fair amount of controversy about chapter one and chapter two of Genesis and how you put them together. The critic says there are two contradictory accounts of creation. Uh, how they arrive at that is always a mystery to me, but looking for things to be critical about, uh, this is an easy one to pick. Uh, why do they say that? Because in chapter 1, God creates everything in six days, etc. Uh, the term or the title of God that's used in chapter 1 is Elohim. We've talked about that before. In chapter 2, the focus is on the Lord God. And in most of your translations, if not all of them, L-O-R-D is in capitals. So that is Yahweh. That's in many ways the most important title for God in the whole Bible. <clears throat> But it's the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And it's not a separate account of creation or a contradictory account of creation. That is not what's going on. When somebody says that, it, it really betrays an ignorance of how Hebrew parallelism worked. It was very, very, very standard and very, very common. And you see it in the Psalms, you see it in Ecclesiastes, you see it in Proverbs, where you say one thing, and then you say the same thing a different way to drive home the point. You're not contradicting, you're complimenting. And so chapter 2 is a focus on the sixth day of creation. And where in chapter 1, the focus is the apex of his work is the creation of human beings, of humanity in his image. In chapter 2, the focus is in the creation of an institution. Marriage, the family. So these are not contradictory accounts, these are parallel accounts. And that God, that you have the title of God, uh, you know, it's here Elohim, here it's Yahweh Elohim, is just showing God is continuing to progressively reveal more and more of who he is, more and more of what he's doing. So, I mean, I, I, I may have lost some of you here, but... Sometimes you may hear somebody say, well, there are two parallel accounts, or there are two uh, accounts of creation, and they contradict each other. Or the one says one thing, the other says another thing. That is, it really does betray an ignorance of Hebrew literature. But besides that, it is not contradictory. It's very complementary. C-O-M-P-L-E. It's very complementary. It's explaining in further detail, this is what God is doing. He's the creator of all things, inanimate and animate uh, life. And the apex of this is he creates humanity as an image, which we're not done with. I want to say more about that in just a minute. And then in chapter 2, which I think we will get into today, the focus is on Yahweh, the sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient one of the universe, what Yahweh means, Elohim, who creates not only humanity in his image, he creates an institution, and the institution is marriage. This is God's ideal. This is what he wants for his world and for his creation and for his image bearers. It is not good that they be alone, but he puts them into a complementary relationship. And we'll talk a lot more about that when we get to the end of chapter 2. So I just wanted, we're going to transition into chapter 2 before we're done today. So I just wanted to make sure you saw the difference they are parallel, complementary accounts, with chapter 2 zeroing in on the sixth day and with the uh, design being to create a new institution, uh, the institution of marriage, which is the most important institution God creates, as you will see in just a minute. All right, did I lose you there, or are you with me? Okay, it's just a, it's a really important point. I, am, I get frustrated when I hear people say that. You have two accounts of creation that contradict each other. That bears a lot of ignorance when somebody says that. All right, let's go back. Uh, so with that introductory stuff done, let's go back to Chapter 1 and pick up. Um, I, I didn't quite get everything done I wanted to do uh, with that last time. But we see in verse 
26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We talked about that. Male and female, he created them. Verse 27, that there is no difference between male and female in the image of God concept. There's pure equality. That's a very important point. The command to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And then again, these really remarkable words that we sometimes miss Continuing in verse 28, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that, that moves on the earth. Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is in the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now, again, if you, if you follow this, this, that language in verse 28 is so important. Rule over it, subdue it, have dominion over it. God does not say that about whales or orangutans or rhinos or amoebas or anything else that's life. He says that only to his image bearers. And so therefore we see that as a dimension of being in his image. The authority, the responsibility, if you will, to rule his world. That is a divine responsibility. And I want to talk a little more about that as we get into chapter 2, because that chapter 2 that is really elaborated upon and, and embellished quite a bit. But this very significant responsibility. And in the way, if you think about that for a minute, there are no restrictions God puts here. He doesn't say, I, want you, I only want you to farm the South 40, but stay away from the others. That's, I mean, I'm, that's stupid to say it that way, but I'm just, I'm just trying to get... He doesn't put any restrictions on this. You have the responsibility to subdue it and to rule it and to have dominion over it. Now, granted, Adam and Eve are clothed in, God, in innocence. They have not yet chosen to rebel against God. But it's, it's really interesting to me how you look at what God is saying here. He is inviting them to be cultivators with him. I'm not doing it. You do it. I'm not telling you how to do it. You do it. I'm not giving you the instructions. You do it. Uh, A book I have my students read uh, uses a phrase that I think is quite powerful. God is inviting humanity to be creative cultivators with him creative cultivators of his world. That's a powerful concept. And that is not removed when sin enters the world. In Genesis 9, as Noah and his family get off the ark, God restates this. Sin affects it. Sin makes it more difficult. Sin makes it, that's why there are dandelions in my wife's flower bed. That's part of the the challenge of what happens, but we are still to rule. Another uh, theologians put it this way. We are invited to be God's theocratic stewards over his world. So it matters to God how we take care of his world. If a farmer is a follower of God, it really matters that he doesn't rape the soil, doesn't use methods that just erode all the topsoil. That's not good stewardship. But to be a good steward is to be have dominion, subdue, rule. We are to do it wisely. We are to do it carefully because we are God's stewards. Very few people look at it like that. But it gives, it gives enormous, God trusts the human race that he creates in his image with that responsibility. And see, that's the horror when sin and rebellion enter into that. Then humanity wantonly destroys God's world for selfish, self-centered reasons. And it's, that's not what God wanted. That's why this, you, you see as the language of the new covenant is in, in, uh, emphasized and stressed throughout the scriptures, this, God's world is renewed. It is renewed and it's restored to what he wants it to be. Everywhere on this planet, you see, bears the evidence of sin and rebellion against God. And I said this last week, and it caused quite a stir among I, I watched your body language or something. But not, you have to let me say it the way I want to say it. But Christians should be environmentalists. That's what I had three of you. Your, your face, everything was really amazing. 
You're saying, are you right wing? You know, I'm just kidding. But what I mean by that is an environmentalist where we see everything that is a part of God's world as a stewardship. You have a, you know, have a piece of property, you know, a, you know, your, your house, your yard or that. That's a stewardship responsibility from God. He's given that to you. He expects you to take care of it. He expects you to manage it well. One of those spaces might have been mine. <laughs> uh, but I think maybe, you know, I don't want to get too far into political politics, but Good. it seems to me the difference between an environmentalist and a conservationist is the conservationist believes that he's accountable to God. The environmentalist wants us to be accountable to the government. Well, that's that's one that is one uh, one way of, of thinking about it. But also, uh, Rob, the many, not all, but many environmentalists come from a pantheistic worldview. Like many in the Sierra Club, I may have read some of their literature. And they come out from a very pantheistic world that everything is God. You know, you know, in pantheism, everything's God. It's not a personal God, not the God of the Bible. But you you hug trees because they're God. You, you care for animals because they're God. That's, that's a very perverted worldview. You care for animals, you take care of the land because it's God's. A steward means you don't own it. God owns it. But a steward means he's trusting you with that. And so in general, throughout history, um, well, I'm not sure I want to get down any further into this money trail. But the idea is stewardship, and that is clearly what's being articulated in verse 28. And so I think Christians should be be taking care of God's world because he's trusted us with this. And as I know you know this, but implicit in stewardship is also accountability. Right? Does that sentence need repeated? Implicit in stewardship is accountability. And so God holds us accountable. And the, the way God has made his world, if we do not take care of his world, his world will not serve us very well. And that's why, you know, there's been so much of the things that has happened over the uh, history of humanity that has caused some of that. But anyway, I don't, I'm not trying to preach environmentalism here. I'm trying to get across the idea that stewardship is a responsibility we have as human beings, and God's given us that. That's actually very relevant. I think so it is. Bobby Zacharias this week is preaching on... Mm. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, there's no better guy to do that than Robbie Zacharias. Can you that no. Moving on then, from verse 29, which I already uh, did read a moment ago, it is probably correct to conclude that as humanity is created by God, it is initially a vegetarian diet. I know that is really hard living in Omaha where steaks are number one and all that stuff. But we'll talk a little bit about that later on in chapter 2 and 3. But it seems plants yielding, every tree, seed its fruit, you shall have them for food. Okay. And then verse 30, to every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Again, what you see, and I'm not really, this isn't, this doesn't mean Christians should be vegetarian. That's not what it's saying. All it's saying is just a fact. When God created everything initially, what was eaten was all animal life and humans ate vegetables or ate plants. That's going to change, and you'll see why a little bit later in the text. And I don't want to make a big deal out of that, but it's just pretty clear that's what it's saying. Then verse 31, and God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. The only time that's said, it was very good. Literally in Hebrew, it's good, good. And he always uses superlative, say very good. But it's, it's all it's saying. is God is putting a stamp of approval on what he's done. Now remember, as we've talked about this before, the term good in Genesis 1, actually throughout the, uh, the Bible, but in this particular context, the term good is that which is conducive to order and that which is conducive to life. 
That's what he means by this. Because Genesis 1-2 is a picture of disorder and chaos, perhaps due to the rebellion of Satan. That's where the discussion is. But as God recreates, reforms, uh, etc., what you see is that now which is orderly and that which is conducive to life. And as you saw it with the animals, etc., the birds and the fish, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's going to give the same command to the human race in just a minute. All right, now, there's one more thing I want to do, and that's the first couple of verses of chapter uh, 2, which really should be a part of, of, of the first day of creation, or the first uh, part of creation. Like, as you know, there are false chapter breaks sometimes. They're not in the original, but... All right, before we look at day seven, any questions? Is there anything you want me to clarify or anything you want to push back on or, or whatever? Yeah. In my Bible, it says, uh, to you it shall be for me, and another area it says it shall be for me. Now, if I'm reading this and not in Bible study, I guess I would interpret that it's just warm-blooded animals, the vegetables and everything. Is, is, is that correct? Are you reading from, is that King James Version? I think or? it is. King, yeah, it's KJV. I see it. Uh, mm-hmm. There it is. King, okay, King James. Uh, they they use meat as food. I mean, you know, meat. You think of it in a carnivorous way, mm-hmm. like a steak. In in sixteen eleven, that is not what that meant. Just meat food. is just food. Okay, that's all it means. Uh, and that's why, as that the history of that word uh, develops over the centuries. It becomes very specific, carnivorous, the muscle and so on of animals. In the 1611, it meant just food. Okay. That's why I'm reading from the ESV, and I think most of you probably have food, don't, don't they, mm-hmm. in that verse, in verse 29. All right, good, thank you. All right? Let's look at um, day seven, which is the first couple of verses of chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, there are three really key terms here. The seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested all from all this work that he had done in creation. Three key words or phrases. Finished, rested, and made it holy. This is a, this is a very significant couple of verses because it helps us to understand what is developed throughout the rest of the Bible, including into the New Testament. So let me talk a little bit about that if, if I can. First of all, it's just it's almost self-evident, but it needs it needs to be emphasized. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Finished. In terms of his creation, of what is necessary for order and what is necessary and conducive for life, nothing more needs to be done. What God intended to create a world of order, a world of stability, and a world that is conducive to life is done. There is nothing more that needs to occur. And again, it's almost self-evident. Why does he even have to say that? But it needs to be stated. There's nothing more God needs to do to accomplish his purposes of a world of order, of stability, and a world that's conducive to life. He doesn't have to do anything more with that. And as you will see, and that's what Genesis 3 is all about, the greatest threat to this world is the rebellion against God. That's the greatest threat. And the Bible will call that sin. The second key word is rested. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work. It is instructive that in this particular part of this in, in, of, of the creation account, the seventh day, there's no, there was evening, there was morning the seventh day. There's no end to it. You follow what I'm saying? Every one of the six days, it states there is evening, there's morning the sixth day, the fifth day, the fourth day, third day. The seventh day, it doesn't say that. 
So it is, it is an interesting, it is an interesting omission that that rest continues. I'm not sure I understand. Okay, I'm not going to explain. It wasn't complete until he had rested. Is that what you said? No, the seventh day is characterized. He completes his work. The seventh day is characterized by rest. But there is no end to it. You see what I'm saying? There's no end to that. Now, here's where you, you must let me do a little theology here. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> because the term rest, I mean, when you and I, and that's just naturally uh, what we think of. When you and I think of rest, we think of a nice, soft bed that we lie down on and go to sleep. Or we've had a very full, busy day and we go home and prop our feet up with a cup of coffee or something and just relax and rest. That's really not the idea here. I mean, it is in a way, but... What, what you see developed throughout the scriptures is what is sometimes called theocratic rest, the rest of God. Let's just use one example. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden or burdened. The yoke is heavy. I will give you rest. Remember that? What does he mean by that? It's in the context of all of the Pharisaic burdens that have been placed on the people of Israel, the legalistic 612 burdensome regulation, Jesus says, what I offer isn't that. I offer you rest. Rest from the struggle with sin. In the book of Hebrews, a central, central book on this, there are four types of rest discussed. And the new covenant rest is the most important, where God provides a time of rest from the struggle with sin. We are instructed to rest in the Lord, which is a metaphor for trust and have confidence and be dependent on him. See, rest has an enormously significant strand throughout the Bible. And it's all wrapped around what God does for the human race. God provides the path of rest. Here, and that word for rest in Hebrew is Shabbat. When we bring that into English, what do we say of it? Sabbath. It's Sabbath rest. The Sabbath. Now, you know what's going to happen. That will be instituted into the Mosaic law, Mosaic covenant, as the Sabbath rest. Though every seventh day you rest. And then every 50 years the land rests. I mean, it's just that is implicit in what God is setting up. A term of rest, of trust, of confidence, of ceasing the normal characteristics and aspects of your life. It does. It's necessary for who we are. That's the way God created us. You work six days, you rest the seventh. But it's far more than that. But it's a, it's a manifestation of our capacity and indeed then our need to rest in God. Rest in him in the struggle with sin, which is then solved in Christ. And then when we get our new resurrected glorified bodies... The book of Hebrews says the eternal rest is upon us. You see, it's, it's a tremendous word that is developed and honed and sharpened throughout the scriptures. But it is all modeled on what God does on the seventh day. He completes what he wanted to complete. And he rests. And then it says he makes it holy. He sanctifies it. He, he makes it and sets it apart as something unique. And that becomes the pattern. This is really important. That becomes the pattern for work. It becomes the pattern for worship. And it becomes the pattern for God's entire redemptive plan. You want me to restate that? It becomes the pattern for our work. Six days with one day of rest. It becomes the pattern of... of uh, 
of worship, that on that seventh day, you set aside a time where you singularly worship God. And then it becomes the pattern for redemption. It's, it's, this is really, really an important section here. We miss it. God completes what he wanted to, everything he wanted to accomplish, he accomplished. Nothing more needs to do, be done for his world to be good. A world of order, a world of stability, a world that is conducive to life. And when he's done with that, he rests. But is that Shabbat that he then declares to be holy, it's sanctified. There is something special about that. It's not normal. The other seven, it's not normal compared to those other seven. There's something unique about that. And that will just be developed throughout the scriptures. Pastors are working on the seventh day, and yet they're worshiping at the same time. And from a theological point of view, uh, how, do, how do you view that as far as pastors? Well, as the priests would do what they were supposed to do in the Old Testament on the Sabbath and all of that, that's a pastor's responsibility. His stewardship for God is to serve at that point. Uh, as almost all people then suggest is boards of the local churches have to make sure that their pastor takes a day off and does not come into the office, does not do counseling, does not prepare for sermons. I'm serious about that because, you know, like, oh, you guys have such an easy job. You know, you don't need a day off. That's that's horrible to say that. You really need to make it part of the protective function of the board is to make sure that their pastor is taking a day. That is, doesn't mean they go home and sleep all day. It's just breaking that normal cycle. Can I tell you a story? Do, do you know, you, you ever hear of the French Revolution? Yes. You remember that 1789 starts and... In 1793-94, a really radical group of people get a hold of the revolution called the Jacobins, and they really do some interesting things. They abolish the worship of Christianity, and they parade through the streets of Paris, a prostitute, and they call her the, the goddess of reason. This is our new goddess we're going to worship. And then they change the work week from seven days to ten days. And they give new names. They get do away with all the Christian name and everything. It's really, really strange what they're doing. But um, so they changed the work week to a 10-day week. Nine days you work, the 10th day you have. What do you think happened? What do you think happened to productivity? I mean, it's just all those things that you would expect to see because, you know, you're a Christian, you kind of think biblically about things. You would expect, and that's exactly what happened. Because that is how God made us. You say, oh, no, he didn't. That's just a coincidence. They just wrote a bunch of stupid people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, that's probably true, but they were trying to shape and remold the human race in their radical revolutionary image, completely contradicting everything, very intentional, abandoning everything in Scripture, and it didn't work. So the very first thing when they were overthrown, Robespierre was the guy leading it, when he was executed and overthrown, the very first thing they did was go back to the seven-day week because it just wasn't working. Under Lenin, uh, in the Bolshevik Revolution, they tried to do the same thing in, in Soviet Russia, just to get to maximize productivity, get the proletarian workers, et cetera, behind them. It didn't work. It just doesn't work. You must understand the rhythm of the body and what God, how God has created it. Is you need rest. Well, sleep and a day where you are not doing the normal thing. Okay, yes, sir. I forget your first name. Fred. I'm, I'm Fred. I'm new. Fred, you're new. Is this your first day here? Yes. It is. Yes. I, I thought you were here before, Fred. You have such a distinguished white beard that you stand out. So, Fred, I always look for you. It's my extinguished look. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, go ahead. In the, in the 1901 ASV, uh, it says that... Uh, God finished his work, which he had made. And that, to me, would imply that he designed that he was going to create the creation, create the world, create all the things in it. But he has other things he's doing. This is only one project that he's... Well, that's... And, and I, I think that's a legitimate way to think about it because, again, it doesn't say what it says at the end of it. And there was evening, there was morning, last day, that that seventh day goes on. 
that God continues. That doesn't mean God's sleeping in heaven. I know that you don't believe that, but that God continues to work. He continues to sustain his universe, and his entire redemptive plan is going on. But in terms of his ex nihilo creation, he's not going to do anymore. Right. Yeah, all he's, yes, he's not disengaged. He's not the deist, you know, absentee landlord who winds up the clock and leaves. God's very engaged in this world, but that's that's right. It's just a lot of very, very important concepts and truths are laid down in this this passage of chapter uh, one, basically in the first couple of verses, chapter two. Can you elaborate a little bit on the concept of redemption as a result of rest? Well, that the the redemptive that redemptive plan because and this is where the book of Hebrews is so helpful. The rest and it's developed later in, in the book from seven till uh, to uh, to eleven. The rest there is the rest of the new covenant, and I know that that needs some explanation. But that that redemptive plan is because sin enters the world, chapter three, and therefore God has to do something. To bring, to bring his creation back to this point of order, stability, and that which is conducive to life, he's got he's to do something redemptive. And that means he's going to have to put, um, this isn't probably how it works, but he puts the plan of salvation together with the goal, again, that new covenant rest, where the striving with sin ends. God's going to pay the price. He's going to make it possible for you to completely and totally rest with him. I think that's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying when he says, come unto me. And I will give you rest. Not not physical rest, although to an extent that, of course, is part of it. And not just spiritual rest, but the entire rest of the new covenant, where the struggle and battle with sin is over. Is that, is that a broader concept? It is. Peace, well, uh, shalom, peace, is an aspect of that, but it's more consequence of that. Because in the new covenant rest God offers, there's peace with him and, and peace with one another. But, I mean, I, I went a little bit beyond um, just the text. But that term rest, Shabbat, in Hebrew, Sabbath, as we bring it into English, is just a very profound concept that's developed throughout the scriptures. And the new covenant aspect of, of Shabbat, of rest, is quite profound because of everything to do with salvation, everything to do with the new heaven and new earth, as God um, remakes the world, because of the devastation of sin that has been upon the world for, for, for so long. Uh, Jim. I just had never thought about the completeness of completion before. It, it is, when you think about it, it's absolutely amazing. It's all of the, how the ecosystems all That's right. work together. How That's the right. Versus the sun, the moon. Unbelievable. It, it is almost overwhelming to even try yes. to contemplate. Yes. What complete really means. That's right. That's right. Every, again, I love to think of it through that term or that grid of the term good, that which is complete, that which is stable, that which is conducive to life. Everything that needed to occur has occurred. The humans have messed it up a lot, but it's still there. And it is, you're right, the ecosystem, every, the complicated nature of things. I mean, it's just, it's staggering. And to me, the more you study it, it just, I just don't, I don't know how. I, I just, it, it just baffles me. For me, it just drives me closer and closer to God. The more I study this stuff, I think I told you my wife got me a telescope for, for my retirement. And I, I'm hardly any kind of an astronomer, but it's just a little bit of stuff I do. It just it incredibly incredibly drives me back to worshiping God. I mean, this God, this is the kind of world you created Amen. for me to enjoy, for my friends to enjoy, and probably in the new heaven and new earth for us to continue to explore. I just see nothing that would indicate we will not go on exploring and discovering and understanding all that God has made for us. Jim, uh, you know, we men tend to be hard drivers, a lot of us do, you know, A-type personalities and so forth. And, and we say, you know, well, I'm just, I'm just beginning to feel, feel it, and I'm going to work hard, and, and then I'm going to work harder. And, and, but we also, if we're married and have children or not, um, aren't we also to be 
sort of stewards of our family. Ooh, sure. uh, so that it's not just about us. And what it is can. never about us. Okay. Yeah, it is never. I mean, it yeah. is not. I mean, yeah. it's. But yeah, I understand. Yes, that's part. That's broadening that stewardship responsibility that we have before God. When you make that decision to get married, then a new concentric circle of stewardship enters into your life. When you have children, another concentric circle of stewardship enters into your life, uh, etc. So yeah, absolutely. Stewardship is a very important word in the Bible. It's all over the scriptures, uh, and it's it's that it's that responsibility that God gives us over a certain area, whatever it is. But with that, always because that's implicit in stewardship is accountability. So yeah. All right. Let's look at if you will for just a moment. I I hesitate to do this, but on page two. Actually, I'm sorry, it's actually page 3, page 4, and page 5. I have, and I'm not going to read through all these. I'm not going to do that. But I did this uh, about two years ago as a result of a question someone asked me, and I decided to really delve into it. And so what I did was I just put together, this is like a little mini mini commentary appendix, like, here are some of the exegetical issues you need to be aware of in chapter one. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not going to read all this to you. But it, I comment on the important number two of the term day, yom, there. But under number one, uh, this is really important to me. As believers who understand that God has revealed himself through his word verbally, which we're studying, but also through his creation, his world, the one thing that we must always be careful is that those two do not contradict one another. Science is not the enemy of our faith. Science is the study of God's world. Now, a, a scientist may or may not believe that. But as a Christian, I believe that. Sir Isaac Newton spent more time studying the Bible than he did optics and physics, which always baffles his biographers. And uh, well, anyway, I'm, I'm getting beyond some of this, but we must be able to make sure that we are aware of some of the issues that come out of studying the physical universe in terms of astronomy, in terms of geology, etc. And this doesn't make Genesis one error or myth. There are ways in which you can put these things together. I'm just I'm not going to try to do that. That's not the purpose of this class. But that's we must we must be aware of that. And then a couple of the other things I just try to deal with, um, number three, the, the, the very, very significant um, theological importance of chapter one for the ancient world. Because remember, that's when this book was written. This, is, this was written for ancient Israel, for them to understand who is their God. And it's Yahweh Elohim, and it's in comparison to all the other, because Israel was in a bad neighborhood of animistic, polytheistic gods who hated humanity, regarded human race as a nuisance, but not Yahweh Elohim. And so that is the profound truth of what is being stated there. Number four, just the, the, the in four and five, the perfect literary structure of this passage. It is remarkable. It's a literary masterpiece of what Moses did there. And then I just make, uh, number seven, some comments about the importance of verse two. I talked about that a little bit the other day when we started this. That, that's a very, very important uh, verse. We must come to terms with those words. They're all negative, ominous words that we have to give an account for. And then finally, under number eight, and, and I'm sure you've already thought this way, but just to make sure you put the parallel of chapter one of Genesis with the parallel of chapter 1 of John, the gospel, because John very much has in mind the parallel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's very clearly paralleling that for us to understand that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was part of it. So I, they're just, that's, if, you, if you don't want to spend the time to read that, that's fine. You certainly won't offend me. But I thought I'd just give you, I'd worked on that a couple years ago and answered some questions some people gave me. 
And so I just thought I'd give it to you and you can do with it what you want. If you don't like it, use it to light your fire this next winter because winter's over or throw it in a recycle bag or something like that. All right, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> chapter 2, as I am saying up here on that board, is not a different account of creation. It's a parallel. This is typical Hebrew parallelism. This is very, very common. And the focus of chapter 2, verse 4 and following, is on the sixth day. And the focus is not the creation of humanity. It's on the sixth day, as God creates humanity, the creation of something else, of an institution. And what is instructive is how God goes about doing this. Now, by way of introduction, I won't say any more about this right now, but verse 4 begins, these are the generations. That word generation in Hebrew is toledot. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but you're going to see it throughout the rest of the book because it will say, these are the generations of Adam, and it will give you the genealogy. These are the generations of Shem, then it will give you the genealogies. These are the generations of Abraham. So what it's doing is it's, 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 it's explaining to us what happens to this world God creates. What happens to planet Earth? Do they follow his command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth? How do they do that? Do they do that obediently? Because there has to be, for the Jewish person reading this and say, you know, 1440 B.C. or something like that. What happens, because I don't see a lot of order and stability in my world. I see just the opposite. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. Because Genesis 3 is going to explain to us what happens to this world God creates. The answer in one word is there's rebellion. The human race declares its independence from God. And that the consequence, we'll get to that next week. But chapter 2 zeroes in on humanity. And God creates. God gives humanity a stewardship responsibility. But he reaches a conclusion, if you want to put it that way. You know, it is not good for man, Adam, gender-specific male, to be alone. I need to create a complement for him. The problem is Adam doesn't know he has a need. Adam's happy. He enjoys walking with God. He enjoys doing what God wants him to do in the Garden of Eden. And so God must do a series of object lessons for Noah, uh, for Adam, excuse me, to understand that he has a need. And then God's going to meet that need. And then he's going to say, this is the pattern for human life I want you to follow. And if you choose not to follow it, there will be very, very serious dysfunctional consequences. Chapter 2, I call the creation ordinance of God. It is one of the most important declarations of the ideal intent of our creator. And so I want to look at it from that perspective, because that's really what's going on here. So... These are the generations of the heavens and the earth which were, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, the earth and the heavens, excuse me. And again, as I mentioned on the board, now it's not Elohim, it's Yahweh Elohim. We're introduced to another, this is part of progressive revelation. God has continued to reveal more and more about himself, more and more about what he's doing with his world. So this is Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh um, I wrote it up there, because in Hebrew doesn't have vowels. The language of Hebrew doesn't have vowels. They're added much, much, much later. But anyway, and so we sometimes will write that Y-A-H-W-E-H to put the vowels in there. So maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but I just wanted you to, to understand. Because Yahweh is really the most important name for God. It's this. It's from that is Exodus 3.14 when Moses says, who, who do I say sent me? 
When I go back to the elders of it, you say that I am that I am. That's Yahweh. That's, Yahweh comes from that. It's the self-sufficient, self-existent, majestic God of the universe. It's a wonderful title for God. So, zeroing in now. When the bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, you look at all of those phrases, your, your, your understanding, this isn't good. This is not conducive. The condition yet is not conducive to order, stability, and life. Verse 6, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, uh, a man, the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, now there are a couple of really important words in verse 6 and verse 7. Now, mist, uh, a lot of different translations to that, but that's how... The original creation of God was, was, was watered. Rain hadn't come yet. Why some conclude, I'm not sure that's absolutely correct, but rain does not come until you get to Genesis 6 with Noah. I'm not sure that's absolutely correct, but that's what some suggest. But that's how the land is, is, is nurtured through water. Now again, verse 7, the Lord God formed. That term formed in Hebrew is an absolutely beautiful word. It's a rich word. It's, he is, he, it's, it's a word of design, a word of excellence, a word of, of beauty. This is a term God formed. It isn't, well, let's see, what should I do? Okay, zap. It may or may not have happened exactly that way, but the idea is God had something very specific in mind here. He crafts and forms with perfection and beauty and design the man. And the Hebrew word for man is A-D-A-M. That becomes a proper name, doesn't it? Adam. But the Hebrew word for man, there actually are several Hebrew words for man, but the one that's used here is Adam, A-D-A-M, of dust from the ground. I'll show you this. The Hebrew word here for man is Adam, and the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. <laughs> Wordplay? Oh, yeah. Wordplay, isn't it? Yeah. It's a clear wordplay going on here. Adam is made from the ground. God crafts and designs and molds, a kind of the idea, from, from the ground, from the dust of the ground. Okay, then it tells us he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. That helps us to understand why he can say, I create humanity in my image. I create it, I fate, design it, mold it, shape it, and I give it life. We get our word spirit from this. Breathe into the nostrils, the breath of life. So that concept of breathing life. There's a physical dimension to it, there's an emotional and mental dimension to it, and there's a spiritual dimension to it. Humanity is not just physical. Humanity is also spiritual. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not losing you. In other words, and this becomes clear with, with the language that's used in, in subsequent verses and chapters, that humanity is not only a physical creation of God, it's spiritual. In other words, there is, let, let's put it another way. What, what is John? John's a human being. Okay, what makes up John? He's a physical being, the 
body that I'm looking at, but he's also a spiritual being. The Bible speaks of his soul and or his spirit, whether they're the same thing or not. But there's both a material aspect to John, but there's an immaterial aspect to John. Do you understand what I'm saying? What the text is telling us here is that when God creates humanity, he creates humanity with a physical set of characteristics, but also a spiritual set of characteristics. And there's this holistic, it's not that they're a dichotomy or opposites or the one's better than the other. That's just the nature of what God creates. That humanity is unique. It is mental, it is physical, it's emotional, but it's also spiritual in its characteristics. And I mean, that, that's all that's good. Is, it, so it's just the Holy Spirit that is, is generating light as he breathes into this form that God has created out of the dust, this Adama that he's created. Uh, and so he, but he get, he's the one who gives it life. And that's unique. It's unique. And in his creation, he's creating a being that has intellect, that has emotion, and has will. So that God then can uniquely fellowship and uniquely have intimacy with his image bearers. I've said this before, maybe you don't remember it, but I've said this before. Think of it this way. In eternity, you have Father, Son, and Spirit. Is there love in eternity? Yes. Is there communion? Yes. So, humanly speaking, when God makes the decision to create, among the many, many things he wants to create are image bearers. Humanity. Image bearers who resemble him, who will represent him, but resemble him that he can have fellowship with. And the love and communion that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity, he will now share with his image bearers. And Adam and Eve are the only human beings that enjoyed that in all of its fullness. My wife often put, I'm forwarding to chapter 3, but my wife often says, Adam and Eve are the only human beings who know what they lost. They know what they lost with sin. You and I, you and I don't know what we lost. We know what we gained. And we gain it when we put our faith in, in, in the Son of God. But in, in all of its fullness, that is, all of that fellowship and fullness awaits the coming kingdom. Because we still have this capacity to sin and to struggle with the flesh and all that stuff. That's a part of our life, even in, 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 in our redemptive state. But the, the, what Adam and Eve lost is restored in Christ. But I often think, I can't, I don't know how you guys have ever thought about this, I can't imagine what it must have been like after Adam and Eve sinned. What they lost. They they lost everything. I mean, you just think what that would have been like. And then what what happens in chapter 4 and what happens in chapter 5, you start to see the depths of what they lost. It's a really, really tragic story. But again, what is regained in Christ? I think it's interesting that, because a lot of very especially <clears throat> conservative friends will say we have the wrong perspective when we say we have a soul. They'll say we are a soul and we have a body. And yet God created the body first. And yeah. the spirit. Yeah. And I, that doesn't cover the soul. Yeah. I I would push back a little bit on that too, that we have a soul but are a body or however you put that. I, both are, we are a soul, this sounds really strange, we are a soul-body unit, and both are important to God. Don't dichotomize those two. It is the fullness of who, my identity is not just the body that you see, it's also the immaterial soul, whatever word you want to give it, spirit. And both of those are important to God. And the holistic identity of who I am, soul, spirit, to a very one of you, is what the resurrected, glorified, eternal state's all about. You're not going to be with God in eternity just as a soul, floating around heaven playing a harp or something. As a soul body, your body and it's resurrected, physical, glorified, I mean, you will live with God forever as a soul body unit. Both are important to God. 
I don't rank one as more important than the other. Both are created, both are a part of our identity as human beings. And, and, and the richness and fullness of what God is doing through his redemptive program is he's redeeming both. The resurrection is about the redemption of the human body. It gets into one of my points of confusion. I've studied the book of Revelation at least twice, once with you. Where we get into, okay, when you pass away, you die. Your spirit, your soul survives. Mm-hmm. And the question, and I know this is a point of discussion, do you instantly have your glorified body? No. Or do you, you wait. That's right. That's what First Thessalonians 4 is all about. Absolutely. You wait for that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. The resurrection is about the rejoining of those two. First Thessalonians 4. 4, 13 through 18. And then read that in conjunction with 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Read those two together. You mentioned that um, Adam is the only one that knows what he lost. Yeah. But did that possibly explain why he felt the need mm. to cover himself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. there was a difference. And he Absolutely. Was Absolutely. No, I, he is very conscious of what has happened to him and the shame that he feels. The guilt that he feels, absolutely. We'll see that. We'll see that in chapter 3. It's de- these are devastating words that are used in that chapter. Thessalonians 4. 13 through 18. In company with? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 50 through 58. Read, read those two together. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was, you know, in thinking of heaven... Um, I think it's a really old system, like everywhere, but you won't remember the beforehand, you know, like this earth that we lived in before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then we'll know each other, you know, we'll know each other. But I, I know there's not marriage up in any like we do have down here, but then I think about something like Elizabeth Elliot, you know, has had three different, four different husbands, you know. They're all up in heaven together. And by the way, all her other husbands died, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> no, I, I know. I'm just kidding. I, but but yeah. they're all up in heaven, you know. How does that, how much further you know, all that works? Because I'm, I'm married to one wife, and, you know, Well, remember Jesus, Jesus says this in his discussion with the Sadducees in one of those texts, that, that in heaven there is no marriage. The mm-hmm. institution of marriage ends right. as we move into the eternal state. Um, and, and among the many, there are a lot of purposes and goals for marriage. The Bible really clear on that. But, you know, Tom, all of those goals and all of those purposes come to an end. Mm-hmm. So that intimacy that you enjoy with, you know, your wife, and we're all men, so we'll just say with our wives, is, is in a sense, it ends with the end of physical life before the eternal. But the fellowship and enjoyment of being with her, I don't think ends. Mm-hmm. Now, it is somebody like Elizabeth Elliot or others who have had a spouse that passes yeah. or whatever. I mean, that just, right, okay. But it just, it seems to be saying to us over and over again in the scriptures that that is not going to be an important deficiency in your life. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, oh, I wish I were still back in Omaha with yeah. my wife in yeah. 1947 yeah. or whatever year you would pick. You know, I don't, the Bible doesn't seem to indicate in any way that we're going to long for that. Mm-hmm. The, the bliss and joy and purpose-filled nature of being with Christ and walking with him for all eternity mm-hmm. and, and so on, it, it'll, it'll make up for that. Mm-hmm. But marriage as an institution does not continue in the eternal state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I figured that, but I just figured how you're close to. I mean, I understand that, but then you know you're both up there. Then how you really yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's so important. I mean, you know, my wife's uh, uh, sister's husband died, and you know, we we did the service for them earlier, a couple of months ago, and and that was something for her, for Karen. Her husband was so sick, before, but that comfort and certainty that he's with the Lord and mm-hmm. that she'll see him again. There's nothing that the Bible encourages us to think that way. Mm-hmm. 
But that relationship in the eternal state will be different than it is now. Yeah. So, all right, we got to quit. I'm a little over. I kept you longer. I'm sorry. Uh, we didn't get very far, but that's okay. We get, we're covering about three verses a week right now, so we can pick up a little bit next time. So let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for this book that we're studying. Uh, not only the Bible, but here the book of Genesis. There is dispute on how to look at some of these things and to mesh it with scientific uh, data and so on. Uh, right now, Lord, I'm trying to stay away from some of that. I'm trying to really focus on just what the text is telling us about what you are doing, about your purposes, and about the majestic account of your creative power. And as we're moving into chapter 2, your creative power in creating the human race in your image with very specific purposes and goals, as well as the, the wondrous institution of marriage, which is what chapter two is all about. And Lord, for us in 2016, with so much chaos and disorder in sexuality issues, gender issues, all of the other uh, things that are just very much a characteristic part of our culture right now, Genesis 2 is an important anchor for us. It really is an important anchor. It's the ordinance that you issued at creation to help us see what your ideal is. And if we choose not to follow it, what some of the consequences can be. But it's a wonderful chapter. It's an anchor, a foundation, a clear guide for us, and we really need that right now. So I hope you'll use it in each one of our lives. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Help us in all we do and say to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.